Only Jesus, the only name to remember. Amen? That's what we've been talking about this year as we've been going through the Gospel of John, looking at only Jesus, seeing the Savior in this selfie world in which we live. And so today we're looking at, uh, in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 15, and we're going to be looking at the cure. You know, we all are looking for cures for different things. About this time of the year, maybe we would love to be able to have a cure for Virginia allergies. Amen? And wouldn't it be great if we had the cure from the sniffles and the scratchy throats, which I just seem to have a little bit of scratchiness in my throat this morning. Or wouldn't it be great if we had the cure for cholesterol and I could still eat fried chicken and not worry about it. Amen? I mean, these are the kinds of cures, man, we would love to have. There's cures that we would love to have for ourselves, as well as sometimes we would look for cures for somebody else. Somebody sent me uh, this picture this week. I want to show you this picture. Uh, maybe you've seen something like this before, uh, where somebody is wanting a cure for somebody else. This gentleman is looking for a cure for his wife, uh, who needs a kidney transplant. And so uh, that was a couple of months ago, from what I understand. There was uh, quite a few phone calls made, not sure if the, the kidney has been found yet or not. But we see that people are looking for cures that for in ourselves, but also in other people as well. But the cure that we're going to talk about today, the cure that is the cure that we all need, and it's not for a new kidney, but rather it's for a new heart. And there's only one who can provide that cure, only Jesus. Amen? Amen? Only Jesus. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, turn there to John 5 if you haven't turned already and stand in honor and reverence to the Word of God as I read verses 1 through 15 right after I take a sip of water. The Bible says this, that after this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool which is is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. And these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool, stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, It's a Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Well, who's the man who said, You take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, a multitude being in that place. And afterward Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you've been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. And the man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would be with us as we Break open the word of God together, Lord, that you would speak to us through this passage, that you would speak to us by your spirit to help us to understand how you are the cure, to remember that, and Lord, may it do things within us, may it stir us, 
uh, to live that life out for you. May we remember that we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. That there's been a change that's taken place because of that. And because of that change, it should motivate us to be your people. To live as your people. To love you as we should. And to point people to you. Lord, let us walk away from here different than when we walked in. May we know that we have been in your presence and that you have challenged us and that you have changed us and you've called us to a place of commitment. And so, Lord, we pray that you would have your way in every heart and life. Lord, use me as your instrument today. Lord, I pray now that may the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, as we look at this passage of Scripture, of course, you have the outline in your bulletin. And if you haven't downloaded that app yet, uh, be sure to do that at some point and uh, kind of go along in there where you can fill in these blanks as we look at this passage of Scripture. Now, as we mentioned last week at the passage of Scripture we were looking at, these are not really well-known passages, not something that you probably have say to people, hey, this is my favorite passage. Maybe, but I'm not sure that that would be the case. They just are unknown passages. But for some reason, the Holy Spirit inspired John to write about these particular miracles last week and this week as well. And so we see here some things uh, about this passage as we look at Jesus being the cure. And so the first thing that we want to look at as we come to this passage of Scripture is that Jesus, he is the cure of the curse. So what curse are you talking about? I hear about curses on TV and curses here and there, but what kind of curse are you talking about? Well, here's the kind of curse we're talking about. It's the curse of sin. And Jesus is the cure of the curse of sin. What does that mean, Pastor? Well, let me tell you. It means that in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, as God created the heavens and the earth and he created the Garden of Eden, everything, as he created man and and the animals, the beasts, all these things, as he created all these things, everything was perfect. There was perfect communion with God between man and God. There was perfect fellowship with man and and God. There was a perfect life. Listen, there were everything was perfect. There were listen, there were no allergies in the garden of Eden. Amen. Amen. Adam and Eve did not need to worry about cholesterol or arthritis or whatever it may be. Everything was perfect. But then Adam and Eve took of the fruit, the forbidden fruit that God had said not to take of, and they rebelled against God, disobeyed God. They fell. And so we see this is the fall. And as the fall is the curse, this, what happened is that they sinned against God, and sin entered into the earth and on the earth. And so from then until now, we are all under this curse. Well, what does that mean? It means that we are separated from God. The curse means that there's now a separation where man used to walk in the cool of the day with God. Now there's a separation because of sin. God is a holy God and he cannot stand in the presence of sin. And so sin separates us from God. And so there's this curse of sin and we're separated from God. And at the fall, man lost his purpose. And our purpose is to glorify God and to delight in Him and to be in a relationship with Him and to rejoice in Him and to give glory to Him. And since that time until now, we live in this state of sin sickness. It's a sin curse we're under. We live in a state of depravity, a state of darkness, and we are lost apart from Him. 
If you're not sure if that really is the case or not, well, let me give you some symptoms of this sin sickness. As we look at our news, it is very easy to find that we're in a time where we're under the curse. Amen? Well, it is a a sin-sick world when we see mass shootings, when we see cheating to get into elite colleges, when we see abortion up to the third trimester and even infanticide. We see sexual abuse and the cover-ups of those. But not only is the symptom of this sin curse that we're under seen in the nation and in the news media, but also we can see the the symptoms of sin sickness in our homes and in our workplaces and in our schools and in our markets and even in churches today where people are angry at each other and they don't even know why or know, uh, know some of the people they're angry at. They're just angry. We see racism that continues to raise its ugly head. We see attitudes of arrogance and pride that it's my way or the highway. We see people spending more effort complaining about the color of a carpet than they are about pointing people to Jesus Christ. That didn't happen here by any measure, but nevertheless, it happens. Amen? Amen. We're under the curse of sin. And not only this separation from God and being in this lostness apart from God, but also we know that at the fall, something else happened, and that was death. That death became a reality. That all creation is now subject to dying. That everything dies. And so because everything dies, that means that our bodies are decaying. That, we are, that we're susceptible to disease and to sickness. And so this thing of death, physically dying, it, no one is immune and it is a reality. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the very first, first part of that verse says that the, for the wages of sin or the penalty of sin is death. And so because of the fall, we're under the curse and all of us die. Now, I know that I have blessed your heart already this morning. Amen. Because we're under this curse. And if I were to stop right there and say, okay, Let's give the invitation, go home. Well, first, you might be pleased because you get to go to lunch a little bit earlier today. But then secondly, you might have to wonder, well, wait a minute. That's not good news at all. And you'd be exactly right. You see, the good news is that Jesus is the cure for the curse. Amen. That's the good news. That, the good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, while the wages of sin is death and we die physically and we indeed are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, don't you love that part? But God, in his grace and his mercy and his love for us, he sent Jesus to take the penalty that we deserve and to die for us on the cross of Calvary. He took the penalty for my sin and your sin, and he went to the cross, and he reconciled us to God, and he gives us life. And as he gives us life, he then transforms our life, and we are new creations in Christ. Jesus is the cure of the curse. You see, Jesus came to reverse the effects of the human fallenness. He came to reverse the effects of the fall. He's the cure of the curse. So as we look at this passage of Scripture, we have to wonder as we walk through every passage, why is it that the the Holy Spirit inspired John to write this particular miracle that took place? As we look at this here, we'll see this morning, as we are reminded that the the purpose of the book is found in John 20, verse 31. If you remember that, 
that, that the Holy Spirit inspired John to write, that these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you may have life in his name. So as we believe in Jesus to be who he says he is, we know that we have life in his name. Amen? Jesus is the cure for the curse. And so what we see here in this first point is that there's really like three subpoints, and I'm going to try to hit those as quick as I can. But we see first off that we see in this passage of Scripture is that Jesus reverses the effects of the curse physically. He reverses the effects of the curse physically. What we see in this passage as we look at what Jesus is doing is that we see that he has the power to heal completely. We saw that in last week's passage of Scripture as well where the nobleman comes to Jesus and Jesus speaks a word and he heals the son who is a long ways away, 20 miles away. He speaks and the son is healed at the same hour. The same thing we see here, Jesus is very near to this man, but he still brings healing. We find that he's there at this pool of Bethesda, that there's a lot of people who are there who are sick, and then Jesus knows this man, knows how long that he has been lame, ask him if he wants to be made well, and then we see that Jesus says, rise, take up your bed, and walk, and the Bible tells us in verse 9 that indeed that's exactly what happens, that when Jesus tells the man who's been lame for 38 years to get up and take your bed and walk, well, what happens? But the man gets up and takes his bed and walks, amen? I mean, he has the power to heal completely. He is, he is showing that he is the cure of the curse because he is all-powerful God who is the anointed one, who is the promised Messiah who is to come. Well, how do you know that? Well, the Israelites would have certainly known the prophecies and the expectation of the coming Messiah. And there are plenty of places where Jesus does healing. But there's one in Isaiah 35 that talks about where he heals a lame man, where the Messiah will heal a lame man. In Isaiah 35, it says, Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer. And so what I think Jesus is doing here is he is showing them, revealing that he is God, the anointed one, the promised Messiah, as he is able to heal the lame, not just any lame man, but a lame man who's been lame for 38 years. And he speaks and he is healed. He is the God who heals. He is able to reverse the effects of the curse physically. Jesus speaks. And it happens. Don't you love the power of God? Amen. Through Jesus Christ. Can you imagine being this man who had been lame for 38 years? The Bible says he had an infirmity. We believe that that and the, the Greek there means like to be paralyzed or to be lame. And so can you imagine that after non-use of his legs, uh, that the bones and the joints and the ligaments would have been weak and maybe atrophied over the years but then at the very word of Jesus, as he says, do you want to be made well? The man answers, and then Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk. We don't know what kind of time frame took place, but can you imagine what that man was feeling in his legs where, where he began to feel the blood began to rush and the, and the muscles began to, to begin to tighten and things began to work again so that he could move his ankles and he could move his knees and he could move his hips. And he got up and he took up his bed and he walked. Can you imagine that? Man, the power of God. 
And so Jesus is showing that he is here to reverse the effects of the curse physically because he is all-powerful God. He is the Messiah, and he is able to heal, and he is the cure. So not only do we see that he cures the curse of the effects of the fall physically, but also we see that he reverses the effects of the curse spiritually as well. As we look at this passage, there's some unanswered questions about the healing of this man. Some questions at the pool of Bethesda like, why did this happen here? Why did it happen now? Why, why this man, even though uh, we believe it fulfills the scripture of him healing the lame? But we see some things here. First, it tells us here that there is a pool by the sheep gate. The pool is interesting. There's two pools, actually. Uh, archaeologists have uncovered two pools there in the shape of trapezoid shape. Bible tells us, tells us there's five porches, meaning that there'd be a porch between those two pools and then a porch all around them. So there's one, two, three, four, and then five, the fifth one in the middle. So there's people sitting all around this great multitude, and they're sitting there by the sheep gate, which would have been likely the closest gate to the temple. And the sheep gate, understand, is the gate where the animals would be brought in for sacrifice sacrifices to cover the sin at the temple. And so the people who are the multitudes of sick people are sitting there at the porch by the pool watching as these sacrifices would be taken into the temple. And so John mentions that here. And it's interesting, I think, that Jesus, the Lamb of God, who is the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, who will take away the sin of the world, is performing a miracle right here at the Sheep Gate as he's revealing to us and to those that he is the Messiah. Other thing we see in this passage, Scripture in verse 3, it tells us that there's a great multitude of sick people, blind and lame and paralyzed and waiting for the moving of the water here. And that also reminds us that just as there are multitudes and multitudes of people at this pool who are hopeless and helpless and and who are looking in the wrong place to find their healing and who are unable to enter into the temple because of their sickness and their disease and they're reminded of it daily as the sheep would go by, such it is with multitudes and multitudes of people today who are hopeless and helpless, who are in need of a cure of their spiritual disease, looking absolutely in the wrong places to find healing, who are separated from God and separated from his presence. See, people are just today just like this man who in this passage of scripture, if you remember, Jesus says to him, do you want to be made well? Knowing everything that there is to know, knows the man and knows what he's going to answer, but he says to him, do you want to be made well? And the man answers, and sir, I have no one, no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. So people are just like this man in that he is expressing his belief in the healing power of the pool when the cure was standing right in front of him. You see, there are people all over the world today and have been since the fall who were looking for the cure to their sin sickness in all the wrong places when Jesus has been right there. If We believe him by faith. People are looking for the cure to their spiritual blindness, their spiritual paralysis, their spiritual hopelessness in the wrong places. They don't really know what, what the problem is. They, they don't know how, what, they're, what they're missing in life. They know they're missing something because there's this emptiness, this void. There is no purpose. They don't feel like there's a purpose in life. Maybe that's someone who's here today who's been feeling that in your own life. 
Maybe you've been trying to find the, your purpose, to find uh, the fulfilling in the video, game, video games uh, victories or social uh, media status or Facebook friends. Maybe you're trying to find fulfillment in the self-centered pleasures of this world and you find that all of these things leave you empty still. They leave us void. They leave us purposeless. As a matter of fact, when we think about the spiritual needs of people, it's not just that we're spiritually blind and spiritually paralyzed and spiritually hopeless, but we're spiritually dead. You see, apart from Jesus Christ, apart from the cure, there is no life in us, no real life, because we are under this curse of sin. Matter of fact, in Isaiah 59, verse 9 and 10, says, Therefore justice is far from us, nor does righteousness overtake us. We look for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in blackness. We grope for the wall like the blind, and we grope as if we had no eyes, and we stumble at noonday as at twilight, and we are as dead men in desolate places. Not only are we like dead men, but we're dead men in desolate places, meaning we can't get anywhere on our own. We can do nothing to be cured of this curse on our own, just like this man by the pool. He can do nothing on his own. He needs somebody else to step in and to help him. And who is that somebody? Jesus. He says, rise, take up your bed, and walk. He brings new life to this man and health and strength and healing to this man. You see, this, this spiritual hopelessness, this spiritual death is in each one of us. And in each one of us, there is this need. There is the need for the cure. And if we do not receive the cure before we physically die. Y'all with me this morning? If, you, if we don't receive this, this cure before we physically die, then understand that we spiritually die for all of eternity in a literal place called hell. But I have good news for you today that the cure is alive and well, and his name is Jesus. Amen? Jesus is the cure to the curse. Because why? He is God. He is the eternal word. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the one who transforms lives. He's the one who can uh, cleanse the temple. He's the only begotten son. He is the one who is is the greater one, who is the soul satisfier, the only hope, and he is the cure. And he reverses the effect of the curse spiritually. We find it in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, where this took place. Who himself, that's Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree. That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. And in Colossians 1.20, And by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. You see, because of what Jesus did on the cross of Calvary, the effect of the curse has been reversed if we'll trust him by faith. Amen? Jesus came to reverse the effect of the fall physically, spiritually, and there's one more sub-point, and that is ultimately. You know, there's another interesting aspect about this story that I find interesting, is that at the end of verse 9, after it tells us that Jesus healed this man, the man got up, took his bed, and walked, it says, and that day was the Sabbath. Now, you know that the Sabbath was the last day of the week, 
and it's the holy day of the Israelites. And as you look at that passage and you think about the Sabbath being the last day, we can deduce this from this as well, is that Jesus is able to reverse the effects of human fallenness on the last day. And what do you mean by that? Well, let me explain it to you. You see, we're living in the last days today. But there is yet to come the last day when he will make all things new. You see, you're not sure about that? Well, let me help you a little bit further. You see, we live in a day that is under the curse of sin. We live in a day where we are sick and tired of being tired and sick. Can I get a witness? We live in a day where we deal with death and we have that prospect in, a, in our own lives that's ever before us. We live in a day of worries and fretting and anxiety. Amen? We live in a day of struggle and sweat and pain. We live in a day where we do not always understand why bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. We live in a day where we will struggle with sin and we will struggle with the flesh. We live in a day where the devil is constantly and consistently deceiving and destroying and discouraging. We live in a day where people will fight and they will bicker and they will complain complain and they will murmur and they will kill and they will slander but there is coming a day amen there is coming a day when the cure Jesus will restore paradise lost. There is coming a day when all that is wrong will be made right. There is coming a day. Listen, there is coming a day when all the effects of the curse will be reversed ultimately and all sin and all sickness and all sorrow will be gone forever. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. Amen. He is the cure of the curse physically, spiritually, and ultimately. I love Revelation 21, verses 3 through 5. It says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them. That separation that used to be there now is brought together. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away and he who sat on the throne said behold watch this I make all things new and not only that he said to me right for these words are true and faithful let me tell you what that means buddy you can count on it amen it's going to happen it's true and faithful because God has said it he will reverse the curse ultimately, and make all things new because of what Jesus did on the cross. Amen? Now, that ought to just wet us up just a little bit to want us to get moving, right? Get us going. Stir us up. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, he reverses the effects of the curse. He is the all-powerful God who is the Messiah, who is the Savior, who reconciles us to the Father, who will make all things new. He's the cure of the curse. Then secondly, and I promise the next two points are not as long as that one, all right? But the second one is this, is he's the cure of complacency. Now, I have to be honest with you guys. As, as I have spent a lot of time with Jesus and this man by the pool this week, and trying to get to know this man a little bit, I have really struggled with this man this week. There's some things about him that I'm just not really sure about. You know, 
Jesus has to ask him, do you want to be made well? There's some things that we see here that he does. Um, you know, he, he's, he rats Jesus out uh, to the Jews here at the end of this passage. Jesus speaks to him when he sees him again and tells him, look, sin no more. So even though we know that when people get sick, it's, it's not necessarily because of a sin in their life, but we know that all, all sickness comes because of sin, the sin curse we're under, but evidently there was something in this man that caused him to have been sick, that he was ill, something, some sin in his life. And so when Jesus comes to him there in verse 6, Jesus saw the man lying there, knew that he'd already been in that condition a long time. He says to him, do you want to be made well? Do you want to be made well? So the question that I think that Jesus is getting at with this man is this, is do you want anything to change? Do you want anything to change in your life? Because this life is all that he's known for 38 years. Now think about it. He's relied on other people for help for 38 years. He has not worked, and so he has had to depend on others for provision for 38 years. And so for 38 years, he's followed the same routines, and this is all that he has known. And so Jesus asked him, do you want to be made well? Do you want to change? And so the man very well had become complacent over these 38 years. And while he wanted to be made well, he is kind of satisfied right where he is. Change would mean they'd have to do things differently. Change would mean having to go to work. That everything he's known for 38 years would be different. And then when Jesus asked him, do you want to be made well, he really doesn't give him a very clear answer. And I, I don't know about you, but I'm thinking that if I had been lame in my legs for 38 years and someone comes to me and says, hey, would you like to be made well? I would say, well, yes, I want to be made well. But that's not what the man says here. The man says, sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water's stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. So he's sort of excusing why he's not been made well yet. And then Jesus, being Jesus, speaks and the man is healed. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. Three imperatives, meaning there's three commands. And indeed, the man is healed. He took up his bed and has walked. If he had some complacency in his life up until this point, he ain't complacent now, amen? He's moving along. Because Jesus said, rise, take up your bed, and walk. He is risen, and he has taken up his bed, and he is walking because Jesus has done something in his life. You want to know what? When Jesus does, does something in your life, it motivates you to move. Amen? You see, the cure to complacency is the change that Christ has made in your life. The cure to being complacent is to, to remember and to know what God has done for you through Jesus, his son, on the cross of Calvary. It is good for us to sing about the precious blood of Jesus. Amen. It is good for us to be reminded that he is the Lion of Judah and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is good for us to be reminded that we are nothing apart from him, but in him he has saved us and made us whole and saved our souls. Amen. I mean, we, we definitely need to remember that because when we remember what he has done for us, it causes us to move away from complacency and into movement for him. But you know, I, I'm afraid that too often we are, we are like this man before he was healed, even seeing some of the things about him after he was healed that can be sort of like us too. 
And I think too often as a church, we can become complacent. And we are comfortable and we are content where we are and we love it there. Man, we love being comfortable, right? We love being comfortable. We love being content. We love being this way. I wonder if we're not like this man in these ways where this man who has been healed, it doesn't seem that he was grateful for what happened. He doesn't seek Jesus out to tell him thank you. He doesn't remember how blessed he is to have this healing in his life. He doesn't search for Jesus. He's, and he, as he rats out Jesus to the Jews, he, he's concerned more about what others think than about Jesus. And I'm wondering if that's not so much like the church today as well. Where the church is so much in desperate need of a healing, in desperate need of life, in desperate need of revival, that, but we kind of like it the way it is. We have become, in, in our prosperity in America as churches, we have become very complacent in our walk with the Lord because we're not sure that we really want to change anything. Because after all, we like our parking spots, and we like our lights, and we like our music, and we like our rooms, and we like our podcast, and we like our social media, and we like our apps, and we like our conveniences, we like our comforts, we like our ceremonies, we like our padded accounts, and we like our padded pews. We like all these things, and we don't really want to change anything, and we're not willing to deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow Jesus. And heaven forbid that it's raining on Sunday, I might stay home instead of going to church and worshiping the Lord and Savior who created the rain. Amen? We have become that way as a church too often in our society. The question for us is, have we become complacent just like this man? Maybe we become like one of the churches in the book of Revelation. There are seven churches there at the beginning of that. Maybe complacency was a factor in five of those. I want to just hit three of them real quick. Three churches that I think were, that complacency was a factor and how they had become. One's the loveless church, one's the lifeless church, one's the lukewarm church. The loveless church, you know, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus speaks to the church there and he says, I know your works, I know your labor, I know your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and that's all great. You've tested those who say they're apostles and are not, you found them to be liars. Man, you got great doctrine. You've persevered in, in, the, in, the, in the world. You have patience and you've labored for my namesake. Man, you are serving and you have not become weary. You are going all at it. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. They were doing all of these things, but in the complacency of their love for the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus condemns them because they're a loveless church. They're not loving him. They love the church. They love the ministry. They love serving, but they've lost the love for him. Second one is the lifeless church. In Revelation 3, the angel to the church in Sardis, Jesus says, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. So in other words, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead. But there are some that are still alive, but just barely. For I, found, I have not found your works perfect before God. So in other words, they had a name of following the Lord, but they were mostly dead. Complacent about where they were serving. And then lukewarm. 
in Revelation 3, 15 through 16, Jesus says, I know your work, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot, so then because you're lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So this church also has become complacent. They're wishy-washy, they're tepid, they're enjoying their prosperity, they're complacent. And each of these churches, as Jesus condemns them for how they are, and I think complacency certainly has a factor in each of those, then Jesus also tells them what they need to do to fix it. And you know what the fix is? He is. He's the fix. He tells them in verse 2, in chapter 2, verse 5, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen and repent and do the first works. Remember what I've done for you. As a loveless church, remember where you were. Remember what I've done in your life. Remember the life change that took place. In chapter 3, the lifeless church, to, to be alive, he says, Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Remember what Je who Jesus is. Remember what he has done. And then in, in the lukewarm church, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chase. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Zealous is to move in a direction, to be excited about who Jesus is. And so we as Christians, we as the church in America today, we need to be very careful that we not become like the loveless church or the lifeless church or the lukewarm church, but we be a people who are so in love with Jesus that we can't stand but to, to keep moving forward for his glory, honor, and praise. That's what we need to be doing as the people of God. You see, the, Jesus is the cure to our complacency. When we get satisfied and settled in, let's go back to the cross. And let's remember who we were, that we were hopelessly lost. And he said, rise, take up your bed and walk. Be saved, be healed, be delivered. And he saved us. Amen? Amen. Be changed by that and move from complacency. And then thirdly, he's the cure of conceit. He's the cure of conceit. And when we look at this passage of Scripture, the end of this chapter, or rather the end of these verses today, verses 8 through 12, we see that what took place here, that Jesus tells the man to rise, take up his bed, walk. Immediately the man was made well takes up his bed and walks. And then the latter part again, as we said, that day was the Sabbath. That is very key. That day was Sabbath. The Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it's the Sabbath. So the man has been lame for 38 years. They've all seen him. They've not done anything to help him. And so Jesus steps in, heals the man. And so when the first thing that they see him do, it's almost like they're watching. They see him, he picks up his mat and he starts walking and says, hey, that's against the law. Why are you doing that? And they said, well, he says, well, the man who told me to, who made me well told me to take him a bed and walk. Well, who's that man? He said, I don't know who that is. I don't know. But you see in these religious leaders, they're not concerned about the man's health. They're not concerned about his well-being. They're only concerned about themselves and their law. They're only concerned about what they think is right. They're conceited. They're condescending. And their conceit's the worst kind of conceit. It's wrapped up in a religion. There's arrogance, thinking they're completely correct and no one else is. How wickedly conceited it is for them to be speaking to this man this way. Their traditions, their ways have grown greater to them than the God who is the healer. And this conceitedness has got them in bondage. This arrogant haughtiness keeps their eyes only on themselves. Beloved, that's what conceit does today for us too. It causes us to look only inward. To look only at ourselves. But, as I, as, but Jesus, as he takes, he brings healing to this man, remember that Jesus is the cure to the curse. 
the cure to complacency, and he's also the cure to, to conceitedness. And as I, I look at this passage of Scripture, I find it very interesting. I, I, as I was reading this this week, I couldn't help but ask the question. I wonder, why, why would Jesus do this? Why, why would Jesus heal this man who didn't really seem to have a faith? Why would Jesus heal this man who didn't have a faith, who, who wouldn't be grateful for what Jesus has done, who would rat him out to the Jews in the end, and that this, at this point, when Jesus does this healing on the Sabbath day, and he tells him to take up his bed and walk, that ultimately it would begin the long road of animosity that the Jews have toward Jesus, that this begins here, and it moves all the way to the cross where they crucify him. Now, Jesus knows all of this. He certainly could have healed him the day before or the day after, and he, couldn't, and he certainly could have said, as he told the man, to rise and take up your bed and walk, he could have said, just rise and walk. But he doesn't. It's on the Sabbath, and he says, rise, take up your bed and walk. And the taking up your bed and walking, moving it from one place to another, was one of the, the Jewish rules, that, that, the traditions that they had added to the law that says you cannot do. Jesus knew that. And he also knew where it was going to lead. It was going to lead to the cross. You see, Jesus did this because he knew that his authoritative action would strike at the heart of the Jews' religion. That Jesus purposely and pointedly revealed that he is the Lord over the Sabbath. And that in doing this, that Jesus was saying that he is greater than the Sabbath and that even that he is the Sabbath. That all works end with him, that he's the Sabbath rest that we need in order to worship God. So Jesus clearly wants them to see their lack of submission to God and his authority and that he is their cure also. But their Sabbath, Sabbath rules and regulations have become more important to the God whom they would have been honoring on the Sabbath. These people were conceited. Jesus is the cure to conceit. Conceit says, I am my own Lord. Conceit says, I'm on the throne of my own life. Conceit says, it's all about me. Conceit says, I'm right and you're wrong. Conceit says, I am better, I am smarter, I am richer, I am more than you. But when we trust Jesus by faith, knowing that he is the cure of the curse, the cure of our complacency, the cure of all uh, pride and conceit, when I know that he took my curse upon the cross and that he paid the debt that I owed, a uh, debt that I could not pay, he took for me, and I know that he's the Lord of my life, knowing that I am not my own, but that he has bought me at a precious price, his blood on the cross, then when I look to him and when I look to the cross, any pride and any conceit and any shameful arrogance is now nailed to the cross with Jesus. He is the cure to our conceitedness. He is the cure to the curse. Two things to do, and we're done. Number one, be cured. So if you're here today, and you've never trusted Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life, know that he is calling you to himself, and know that the cure is waiting for you to be healed of your sin sickness. 
He is there and he is the cure and he is calling and he is alive and well and he is working today in your heart. Maybe you're here and you sense that, that he's been calling you. You know that something's been missing and you've heard now that Jesus is what's missing, that he is the son of God who came for you to pay the debt that you owe so that you could have life and not be spiritually dead. Be cured. Well, how do you do that? Well, it's a step of faith. We acknowledge we're sinners in need of a Savior. We turn from our sin, turning toward Jesus Christ in humble repentance, believing, embracing with all of our heart that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross, who rose again bodily from the grave and profess Him as the Lord and Savior of life. It's a step of faith. I mean, secure. If I was to tell you today, hey, you know, we deal with these Virginia allergies, and I've got a pill that you can take. And it's a 100% guarantee if you take this pill, you will never have a sniffle again due to pollen. You'll never have a scratchy throat again due to the ragweed or whatever it is. And you, and I'm saying it's a 100% guarantee. It's the cure. How much would you pay me for that? Well, maybe come springtime, you'd pay me a whole lot more than you would right now. But you're interested in it. But what we're talking about is way more important than a cure to allergies. Amen? It's a cure that gives us life. Life that is eternal. And life that is blessed by Jesus. So when I'm cured, does that mean that I no longer have any difficulties? Oh, no. We still have problems. But now in our problems, we have Jesus. Amen? Be cured. And secondly... If you already have been cured, you already know Jesus is Lord and Savior of your life, then here's what you need to do. Place your yes on the table. You're a child of God. You love the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you settled in to this symptom of complacency? Have you become comfortable, content, satisfied? How about this morning? Let's change it up a bit. How about this morning? As you come to this moment of invitation and commitment, why don't you say, Lord, I'm going to put my yes on the table. Lord, I'm going to put my yes on the table. That means whatever you want me to do. Whoever you want me to speak to, whichever way you want me to do this, to live this life out, Lord, my yes is on the table. You can't say no, Lord, to the Lord. Amen? If he's your Lord, you got to say yes. So you can put your yes on the table. So set aside your complacency and all your conceitedness, all your pride, all your looking for your own comfort, and deny yourself, take up the cross, follow him, and place your yes on the table. Will you do that today as we come to this invitation? Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we come now to this song in which we sing, the Lord, you would stir in our hearts a desire to put our yes on the table, and Lord, that we would do that, that we would remember your amazing grace that has been shown to us on the cross of Calvary, that indeed our chains are gone, that we're no longer in bondage to the curse of sin, and that we have freedom and we have life and we have hope. And because of that, it stirs us toward uh, to, to taking up our cross and following you and not complacency and certainly not conceitedness, but also to point people to you. Lord, may you help us this day to put our yes on the table whatever that looks like. And Father, there are those that you're calling into ministry. 
calling into the pastorate, calling to be chaplains, calling to be church planters. Lord, would you be with them that they would say yes to you, putting their yes on the table today. For those of us who may not be full-time in the ministry, but still are your missionaries right where we are, we put our yes on the table today. So, Lord, I'm on mission for you. Whatever that looks like, I want to be on mission for you. Lord, but maybe there are those here today who've never trusted you by faith, that they're looking for the cure, and they've heard about it today, and they need to know that Jesus is the Lord of their lives. Lord, I pray that this would be that moment where they'll come take one of the pastors or myself by the hand and say, I want Jesus to save me. I want Jesus to be my cure, to make him the Lord of my life. And so, Lord, may you work in all of our hearts, we pray, as we come in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to stand and we're going to sing Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone.